Well, it's good to hear you this morning. It's good to see you too, but it's good to hear you. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I was as I was walking up, and Meg told you to go and, and to greet one another. Uh, I remembered back just a couple or three years ago when uh, uh, we first started here in the uh, auditorium at Panther Creek, and there was about uh, 75 of us. We had a black curtain about halfway back to make the auditorium look a little bit smaller, and and we've always done the greeting thing because that's really important to us. We, uh, you see our values when you come in, one of them being that we want this to be a place where you belong, uh, where people know your name. And they don't just know your name, but they know the circumstances of your life, and they do life with you in community. And so I, I, I thought as I was walking up, and I don't know why it just uh, struck me, um, how it wasn't really that loud those first few Sundays. And it's interesting that as more and more people come to Northwest, it's interesting how that greeting time gets louder and louder. And I think that's an awesome thing. And so while it is good to see you, it's also uh, really good to hear you uh, this morning uh, as well. So thanks for, thanks for being here. and thanks for, thanks for trusting us with your spiritual care uh, this morning. Um, I don't take that lightly, by the way, if you're visiting with us, if you're our guest today. I don't take that lightly at all. I think the fact that you would walk in the doors and that you would trust someone like me to open up the word to you and uh, tell you what God said and what he meant by what he said and what we should do as a result of what he said, uh, I take that responsibility very seriously. So thanks for being here uh, with us today. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with us to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. You don't know exactly where that is. Uh, you probably wouldn't be the only one. So you can look at the beginning of your Bible there, and there are page numbers uh, that are listed. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, just to give you a little uh, address there where it's found there in the Old Testament. There's no doubt that Winston Churchill was one of the most inspiring leaders that has ever lived. Uh, he was a British conservative uh, politician and statesman known for his leadership in the United Kingdom during World War II. Um, he was widely regarded by many as one of the greatest wartime leaders of uh, his century. And if you know anything about Winston Churchill, you know that he was elected prime minister twice in the UK, which is a remarkable thing. And not back to back, 1940 to 45 and then 51 to 55. He was a noted statesman and an orator and Churchill, Churchill was also an officer in the British Army. He was an historian. He was a writer. He was an artist. He's the only British prime minister to have ever received the Nobel Prize in literature. And I found this interesting as I was looking into his life this week. He was the first person to be made an honorary citizen of the United States of America. Pretty incredible thing. One of the most interesting things about Winston Churchill, if you've done any reading about him, was his wit. Not only was he an orator, but he used those oratory skills so often uh, with great humor and very often, uh, those words were directed in a humorous way towards people that he served with in the uh, British House of Commons. I remember one in particular, Lady Astor, once said to Winston Churchill, If you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. To which he quickly responded, If I were your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> I don't of you ladies get any ideas about that, but... If you're not familiar with Winston Churchill, and I know a number of you probably aren't, certainly a number of probably our, our students, 
You should read more about this man. I was telling my high school son last night, this is a biography that you ought to read about this man, Winston Churchill. He was a colorful and he was a motivating leader in a time that was very tumultuous, not only in England, not only in Europe, but obviously in our world. He stated the case without sugarcoating reality. And in May of 1940, by the way, you can go to websites uh, where all of his speeches are listed, which I find uh, very remarkable. I think he died in 1965, and people are still intrigued by the words that he said as a leader. But in one particular speech in May of 1940, in his first speech to the House of Commons as Prime Minister, he said these words, and I read them. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France, we shall fight in the seas and the oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never, ever surrender. Later he would say these words, when I warned the French that Britain would fight on alone, whatever they did, their generals told their prime minister and his divided cabinet, And they said, in three weeks, England will have their neck wrung like a chicken. To which he responded, some chicken, some neck. We know from history that England's neck was never wrung by the Nazis. You see, Churchill had an incredible ability to stand before a crowd and to inspire confidence and strength, even when the reality of the particular moment should have caused them to have great fear and trepidation. And it's interesting that as we get to Nehemiah chapter 2, that our friend Nehemiah finds himself in exactly one of those moments that Winston Churchill found himself in, in just those type of circumstances, as we pick up our study in chapter 2 and uh, verse 9. Now, we don't know exactly how much time has passed between verses 8 and 9. Last time we were together, we went uh, through verse 8, and you'll remember that the king had granted Uh, Nehemiah permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild uh, those walls. And you'll remember at the the end of verse 8, if you have your Bible there, it says, And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. One of my favorite verses probably in the whole book right there. And as we left off at verse 8, we're not sure exactly how much time takes place between verse 8 and verse 9. There are some uh, Bible scholars that believe it could have been as much as three to five years. I really don't think that that's plausible or possible that it was three to five years. I suspect that Nehemiah got with his plan right away, that he went and he began to plan and prepare the way for his mission that God had called called him to back to Jerusalem. And I believe probably it was just a few weeks or a few months after talking with the king that he took off on his journey for Jerusalem. And that's where we pick it up in verse 9. The text says, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Nehemiah's trip, if you remember our study several weeks ago, was about 800 miles. And as he passed through each province, he would simply show them the letters that the king had given him. Those letters gave him credibility and they really gave him permission for his journey. 
He would show somebody those letters when there was any question about where he was going or what he was doing or the mission he was going to accomplish. He would simply show them the letters which said, the king told me that I could do this. Now let me pass in peace. He also traveled, as the text says us, tells us, with a security uh, detail. No doubt because he was a member of the king's staff and the king wanted to protect him. It was kind of an extra benefit as he was on his way on that 800-mile journey back to Jerusalem. Verse 10 says, When Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. You're going to find this to be true, not just today, but in the weeks uh, to come. I was going to say months, but I don't want to discourage you about our study. In the weeks to come, you're going to find this to be true. Uh, that um, there were people along the way and all the way through those 52 days of building that wall that didn't have the same enthusiasm that Nehemiah had. They weren't excited about Nehemiah's plan. Uh, These men, uh, Bible scholars tell us, were most likely government officials who were also involved in the opposition that we uh, read about several weeks ago in Ezra chapter 4. Sanballat was from Beth Horon, which was about 12 miles from Jerusalem, and Tobiah was an Ammonite, and so he was obviously an avid enemy of the Jews. You can read about that in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23. And then there was Geshem, who was an Arabian. We'll talk more about them uh, as our study uh, goes through. Verse 11 says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Nehemiah most likely spent those first few days just resting, just catching up a little bit. Um, and no doubt that journey had probably been several weeks and he was tired from the journey. And so he rested in Jerusalem for a few days, but he did have a plan. Verse 12 says, And I rose in the night and I had a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. If you're a leader, if you find yourself in leadership, and many of you do, whether you find your leadership, yourself in leadership in a church setting, in a, in a work setting, uh, in the home, you know that as leaders, leaders very oftentimes find themselves alone. When other people are sleeping, when other people are resting, uh, leaders very often are up at night. Now, it's not just because they're overworked, not just because, you know, somebody's beaten on them and expecting them to put, on, put in a certain number of hours, but leaders carry a tremendous burden for those people that they lead. And certainly that's true. Dads, I hope it is true of you on a regular basis when you know things maybe that are going on in your family and you're concerned that you spend time up and maybe you're praying and you're thinking through a plan. That's what leaders do. I will tell you this, those of you that call Northwest your, your, your church, that your elders very often spend time up at night and, and not just watching uh, basketball games and doing things of that sort. Many times we find ourselves up at night because of our concern for you, because of our concern for the direction, uh, for the ministry of this church. Many times leaders find themselves alone and they find themselves uh, before the Lord when others are resting, when others are sleeping. And Nehemiah up to this, uh, this point had really spoken to no one except God about his plans for Jerusalem. And I really believe that that was a major part of his success. That's why God granted him favor. That's why the good hand of God was upon him because Nehemiah realized where the success would come from. And so he talked to the Lord and he was doing the right things. Important to remember when nobody else was watching. 
And that ultimately is what makes a great leader. Never buy into the idea that a great leader is necessarily who you see on a stage. That a great leader is necessarily who is leading a team to the championship game. Uh, Great leaders are those people who do the right things and are the right men or the right women when nobody else is watching. And we certainly find that to be true of our friend Nehemiah. Verse 13 says, So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. And then I passed to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. He went down, basically, if we had a map up here this morning, and we don't, he went down to the southern part of the city and then back up the west side to the fountain gate. Historians and scholars believe that the debris was so great that when he arrived at the fountain gate, at the king's pool, that there was actually no room for his horse to be able to walk. And he had to literally get off of his horse or donkey, whatever it might have been, and he had to walk by foot. Nehemiah went to each part of the city, basically getting an overview of the damage. Now, you can imagine that this was the first time for Nehemiah having been there. And because it was the first time, it had been 140 years since the devastation had took place there in Jerusalem. You can only imagine what he must have found. Verse 15 says, So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Nehemiah didn't say anything to anyone up to this point about why he was in town, at least for these first three days. But then after three days, after he had surveyed the situation and the damage to the walls, he stood in front of the city council and he boldly proclaimed what his plan would be. Look in verse 17. It says, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Now from time to time in a narrative like this, I read and I think, is that really all he said? I mean, did he really only get up and, and, and basically have one run-on sentence that he said in front of this group of people? I suspect that there was probably more that he said than just that, but that's all he tells us that he said. But I am intrigued by these three words. And if you have your Bible there and a pen, I would mark these three words. I'm, I'm intrigued that Nehemiah chose to use as he talked with these people, we, us, and then we. Imagine how it might have gone for Nehemiah if when he had stood before that city council and obviously other Jews that were standing around, if he would have just simply said, you guys are in a really bad situation here. I mean, a really bad situation. You know what you need to do. And I'm going to be staying over here at the Holiday Inn. And, and when you guys figure it out, whatever it is that you're supposed to do, then maybe you can come and let me know. And I wasn't part of this problem And I'm probably not part of any solution. But you guys definitely have a problem, and you need to figure it out. Imagine how it might have gone for him if he would have communicated with passion that way. It's interesting to me that that's how many of us as leaders sometimes choose to communicate vision. We choose to communicate a problem and then a solution. Rather than identifying with the people that we're communicating with, we make them uh, to be uh, the problem, not Nehemiah. 
Here's an important thing for you to remember. Whenever we blame and criticize, we squelch motivation. But when we identify with the problem and the solution, we motivate people. I learned that very early in my ministry. As a young man going into student ministry, I learned it and God had to keep teaching me the lesson year after year after year and he's still teaching me the lesson. I know the lesson, I just haven't totally learned it yet. And that is that that when we lead people, we need to make sure that we identify with those people. And I've had people say to me sometimes that I'm a little bit too transparent when I'm teaching you. That sometimes I tell you things that I probably shouldn't tell you because you might look down on me or you might not see me with credibility as a pastor because of what I share with you. I hope that that's not true. I hope that as I communicate to you, that as I teach you the word, you understand that I'm wrestling through the same things that you're wrestling through. As you're struggling at times in your marriage relationship, I do in mine. Not because of my wife primarily, but because of me. And just like from time to time you struggle with your kids, sometimes, believe it or not, I know hard to believe, we never struggle with Caleb, but we have two sons that we struggle with. And from time to time in my job, what I do for a living, and some, sometimes from time to time I get frustrated uh, in my neighborhood with a neighbor, or sometimes when I'm driving a car, I, I get frustrated with the person that's in front of me or the person that's driving in the left-hand lane when they should have moved over to the right lane. And I find myself, just like you do, having to put some of these same principles into practice in my life. And leaders don't avoid that. Leaders identify with that. It's not okay for me to struggle in those areas. It's not okay for me to sin. But it is part of the journey that I'm on. It's part of the journey that you're on. And so if on that journey you're finding yourself, as Meg prayed earlier, messing up from time to time, you should come to church here. This should be your place where you live in community with us. Because you'll find a bunch of people that are uh, clay pots that have been broken, that God's put back together, and somehow is using us to make a difference. But that's who we are. And so Nehemiah challenges them, let us do something. He was challenging them, by the way, with an enormous task. Rebuilding a wall that was 15 to 20 feet high for one and a half to two miles in length. The wall had been destroyed for about 141 years. And Bible scholars tell us that if you know the geography of that particular part of Jerusalem, especially the part of the wall that he was investigating, no doubt many of these large boulders had rolled down literally into the valley. And somehow they would have to bring up these boulders back up from the valley in order to begin that w- building that wall. And that sounds like a lot of work to me. That sounds painful. I went out and edged my lawn on Friday night and I mowed and then blew all the clippings and and I was worn out. I mean, I can't imagine if I had been one of those workers on that wall. I can't imagine being Nehemiah to say, woohoo, let's go rebuild that wall. See those big boulders down there? Let's go grab them and bring them back to the top and put them back on the wall again. That's what he was trying to motivate them to do. And even in 2012, that almost sounds like an impossible task. But remember, they were doing this in 445 BC. I'm pretty sure that Caterpillar as a company had not been founded yet. 
There were no big dozers. There were no big dump trucks. Just a bunch of exiles who had returned to Jerusalem and were incredibly discouraged. And Nehemiah is telling them the truth. Hey, I want you to go and I want you to come with me and we're going to rebuild these walls together. He's telling them the truth. There's a lot of work to do. The city is desolate. The gates have been burned. It's going to be a lot of work. And in a spiritual sense, he was describing really a city not too much different than our city, than our state, than our country, than our world. Let me say to those of you this morning who really get what we're about at Northwest Community Church, that this city really needs churches that see themselves as hospitals and not simply as country clubs as places where people gather on Sunday mornings as just another one of the things that they do during the week, just as if they gathered at the clubhouse, in their neighborhood, at the swim club, whatever it may be. This city needs churches that see themselves as hospitals. That'd be a great time to acknowledge that somehow. You can shout, you can scream, you can do whatever you want to do, but that's what this city needs, doesn't it? Don't your neighbors need that? Don't the people that you work with need that? Don't, for many of you, don't your families need that? A hospital, a a place where people go to that that are messed up? This city, this state, this country, this world is desperate, I believe, for a demonstration of the authentic, life changing message that Jesus has given us to give them. We're sinners, and because we're sinners, We have a debt that we can't possibly pay on our own. But because of Easter that we'll celebrate in just a couple of weeks, that payment for that sin debt has been made. And all we need to do is simply place our trust in Christ alone as our Savior. And that message of hope comes. It brings hope for a broken world, for people that are wandering throughout life without purpose. And if we're going to be that kind of a church I'm going to tell you this morning, just like Nehemiah told these people about fixing those broken walls, I'm going to tell you that in a spiritual sense, if we're going to be that kind of a church, it's going to require of us that we be that kind of a people, that we really get serious about the work that we have to do. And it's not easy. It's not like just simply going to the country club and laying in the pool, laying in the hot tub, playing a game of tennis going out on Friday night for your annual family. It's not easy what God's called us to do if we're going to make a difference in this world for him. That was the message that Nehemiah had to give to the people. I take encouragement uh, from that. That if somehow he could get a bunch of exiles who were incredibly discouraged to rebuild this wall in 52 days using a motivational message like he used, then it's possible that somehow we might be motivated to rebuild the walls and make a difference in a broken, desolate city like ours. And in spite of all those obstacles, Nehemiah says to them, let's go go to it. (laughs) Let's go rebuild that wall. And he also gives them a reason for accepting the challenge. He says, so that we will no longer be a reproach. What did that mean? When Nebuchadnezzar uh, invaded Jerusalem, it brought great shame not only on the Jewish people, But most importantly, it brought great shame to their God. You'll notice, and and 
we have to move on here, and, and I, I really want to get mired down here for just a moment, but I'm not going to do that. You'll notice that Nehemiah's reason for action is not extrinsic, it's intrinsic. You know the difference, right? Ex meaning external, outside of ourselves. Internal meaning inside of ourselves. Uh, Most leaders, by the way, and not just political leaders, they're certainly good at that. But most leaders, even parents, use extrinsic motivation and we do so very well, don't we? We say to our child, hey, if you're good in the store, if you keep your mouth shut, if you don't grab things off of the shelf that I don't want in my cart, then at the end, if I decide that you're good, then I'll go buy you some ice cream, right? You don't say, hey, if you really have a heart for Jesus, then you won't grab those things off the shelf. We don't need any more tater tots out of the freezer. We don't need any more packages of Oreos. And if you really love Jesus, you'd know that Jesus doesn't want you to do that either, so don't do it. That would be intrinsic. Instead, we choose the extrinsic motivation. We tell our kids, get good grades, and guess what? I'll buy you a car. Now, I never bought into that idea, but maybe some of you have. I say get, grade, get, get good grades, and one day you'll be able to leave my house and get a job. That'd be awesome. Still extrinsic motivation, just a different tool. And then we get our job. We go out into the workplace, and our boss says to us, hey, if you do really well, if you meet your sales goal, I'll give you a vacation of a lifetime to the state of Nebraska. That's right. You thought I was going to say Hawaii or someplace like that. That's because you haven't been to Nebraska. Extrinsic motivation. It's not always bad, but it's certainly not always the best way to get a person to see the value of their investment, of their energy, of their time, of their effort. Now, spiritually speaking, I I really believe that the highest level of motivation for a Christ follower is intrinsic. When we get to that point in our life, that we are motivated by that which is on the inside. That is the fact that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are Christ followers. We are are no longer uh, citizens of this world. We're aliens and strangers here, and our citizenship is in heaven. And because of that, motivation comes intrinsically from a heart that is bent towards God and his plan for our life a desire to make a difference with our life that has lasting, eternal reward. Unlike an ice cream cone or a car or even a vacation to Nebraska. When you get to that point in your spiritual life where you're not simply motivated extrinsically, but you're motivated intrinsically, what an awesome thing that is. And some of you have, have been in churches and maybe some of you even grew up in, in places where legalism was the was the rule of the day. And everything was how you look and what you do and where you are and how you dress and all of these things that are on the outside, pound, pound, pound. And that was your motivation. And if you looked a certain way on the outside, on the external, you were okay. I'm so convinced that as I read through Scripture, God is much more concerned and consumed with my heart than he is my externals. And Nehemiah understood that. And so he appealed to that which is on the inside. And I believe it wasn't just the great shame that had come to them as the Jewish people. I believe, most importantly, that it was the shame that had come to God. Because their city had been judged and Nebuchadnezzar had come in and had destroyed that city. Had destroyed the temple where they worshipped God. 
And I believe Nehemiah was appealing to them, to the inside, to their soul, to their spirit, where he said, doesn't something about that shake you and bother you that the honor of God has been shamed? Verse 18 says, So I told them that the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and go build. So they put their hands to the good work. This is pretty incredible. I say it to you often. I'll say it to you now. I know it's only 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, and I know you probably stayed up late last night. But this is a pretty incredible thing. 141 years have gone by. One pastor put it this way. They've had 141 years of sales pitches, of failed efforts, of T-shirts, of rallies, and bracelets. But nothing's ever really gotten done. And instead of responding, hey, we've tried that before. We can't possibly do that. Who do you think you are? Nia, who? Instead of responding that way, they say, let us rise up and build. And they strengthen their hands to do the good work. They said, you know what, Nehemiah, we're in. We don't even really know who you are. You've been here for three days. You haven't even introduced yourself. But we believe. We believe that God's brought you here. And we believe that God's going to use you to do something that has been impossible for 141 years. We believe God's in this. We believe God loves this city. We believe God loves us, his people. We believe that all these things are possible. And we're trusting him to do something that up until this point has been impossible. Don't you love these people? Yeah, you do, right? I mean, I do. It's just sometimes, I'm, sometimes I read through Scripture, and there are sometimes when as I read, I go, um, those people are just stupid. I mean, why did they do that? Why did they say that? In fact, there are certainly times when we study the Israelites throughout the Old Testament where we go, why did they say that? Why did they do that? Why did he do that? I would have never done that. This is one of those moments where we celebrate the Jewish people, and we go, that's awesome. That was just a little bit of motivation, they say, We will get to the work. Let's go ahead and let's build. Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and they despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? My experience has been that uh, uh, opposition uh, usually means great opportunity, right? Right? I I try to push myself that way as a leader, that when you see opposition, especially opposition that you're convinced is not being used of God, but it's opposition just for the sake of being uh, obstinate people that are are behaving in that way, I I usually believe that, that opposition usually means there's a great opportunity and we should keep our eyes out for it. I think it's very important to remember that uh, as a young church. That usually when we see opposition, God is about ready to do something that's pretty incredible. And my experience has been that any time that something bold is attempted for God, there will inevitably be criticism. That's exactly what begins immediately. Those same cynics that we met in verse 10 hear Nehemiah's plan and they begin, just like our politicians of today, they begin running the negative ads on TV. I mean, you think Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem, they get together and they go, well, we got a big war chest. Yeah, we got a political action committee that's out here that wants to stand up against that. Let's start running negative ads. And I, you can just see it, right? 
if it were happening in our day to day, all this this crud that's happening on the and people are seeing it and they're not able to do it. That's what their goal is. The text says they mocked us and they despised us and said, "What is this thing you're doing?" And then tried to scare them. Are you actually rebelling against the king? And we'll see, by the way, that their mockery doesn't go away. Don't want to give the story away. Not like you can't read it this week. But if you get to chapter 4 and verse 3, they actually, just like little kids in a sandbox, these same men say, hey, if a little fox came by, he would knock down that wall. Ooh, what a cut down that one is, right? It's a good one. Back in the day, that, that was really something, kids. Try that tomorrow at school. Here's what you'll find out. Every leader whether that's in your home, whether that's in the church, at work, or in the community, if you're in leadership, you need to be able to develop the ability to be able to handle criticism. You have to do that. Now, I, at this point, am preaching you a sermon that uh, I don't live out real well. I get better at it the the older that I get. And if if Jesus tarries and keeps me here for about another hundred years, I think I will master this particular area. But if you're in leadership whether it's church leadership, whether it's in your home, whether it's in the workplace, you have to develop the ability to be able to handle criticism. If you're never criticized, it's possibly or probably because you're not doing anything that's of value. That's why you're not being criticized. In almost every instance in Scripture, when someone was involved in something of eternal significance, there was opposition, there was criticism. On the day at Pentecost, you remember that some of the Jews in the crowd said that the Christians were drunk. In Acts chapter 2, the Greek philosophers, you know what they called Paul? They called him a babbler. Acts 17. And then Festus later on told Paul that he was out of his mind in Acts chapter 26. It happened to Jesus often in his earthly uh, ministry, and it happened uh, literally all the way up until the cross. Someone once said, and I really like this, this might be something you want to write down, If we're not being criticized like Jesus was, maybe it's because we're not doing what Jesus did. Did you get that? If we're never being criticized like Jesus was, maybe it's because we're not doing what Jesus did. Very often a great question for us to ask as a corporate body. If we're never being criticized, we certainly know that Jesus was, Maybe the reason we're not being criticized is because we're not doing what Jesus did. At this particular point in the story, I think it would have been very easy for Nehemiah to get discouraged and to just quit when he faced discouragement, when he faced the criticism and the mocking even before he started. I think I could have simply reasoned this way. Many people don't want a wall. You know, maybe they don't even need a wall. After all, it's been 140 years and they haven't had a wall and they seem to be doing just fine. Maybe I misunderstood God's will. And maybe we should just, maybe we should just give up this whole idea and maybe it really wasn't a good idea after all and they really don't need a wall. Let's just forget it. You see, here's the the point that since there is rarely opportunity without opposition, we have to be... uh, willing to not only embrace the opportunities, but we have to brace the obstacles, the opposition as well. I believe that that's going to be very true for us as we move forward as a church. 
as a church that has a mission in this community, not just simply to be a country club where people come and gather on a Sunday morning and maybe gather in small groups during the week, but a place where we are a spiritual hospital for people. Let me just tell you that. If, that if we determine to be that kind of a place, we are going to face opposition. That if there's a great opportunity to be that kind of a place, that opportunity will not be realized without opposition. And we cannot embrace opportunity without embracing the obstacles as well, those things that will come into our path. And I don't know what those things may be. It may be because we choose to uh, abide by the principles of this book. Do you recognize that as weeks and months and years go on, that our world, our secular culture, society is becoming more and more hostile to those things which are black and white in God's word? Just last week, I saw a, uh, a, a person that I listen to regularly uh, on uh, CNN and and they were quizzing him about homosexuality and about what the Bible says about homosexuality. And Mark very clearly and succinctly stated his position based on Scripture, that he loved those people. It wasn't an issue of loving those people, and yet the commentator pounded and pounded and pounded and pounded at him. And I remember watching that, thinking, that's not going to get easier, that's going to get harder if we're going to be a place that is committed to biblical truth. I'll never forget the words, actually, which this commentator said back to Mark Driscoll when he said, "Uh, Pastor, you know that eventually, eventually it's going to become legal in all of the land. And eventually most churches are just going to decide to accept it. You know that's going to be true, don't you? His reasoning was, since it inevitably is going to happen and it's going to be legalized all over the world, why don't you just go ahead and do it now so that you don't have to fight that particular battle? Now, I say that to a group of people that I don't know everybody that's in this room this morning, and I don't know where you stand on that particular issue. But I do know what God says. I do know what God's Word says and how we should behave, and I do know how God's Word says we should behave with those people that find themselves being disobedient to Scripture. And I'm thankful that we know how to behave towards people that find themselves being disobedient to Scripture. You know why? Because sometimes I find myself being disobedient to Scripture. Lest we ever think that homosexuality rises above another sin in this book, and according to that God, it doesn't. But we need to be people who are willing to stand on biblical principle. And if there's opportunity to impact our world with the gospel, with the life-changing message of this book, then we have to understand that with that opportunity, there will be opposition. And we have to be prepared for that. So Nehemiah could have quit, but he didn't quit. He drew a line in the sand. And so verse 20 says, I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial, in Jerusalem. One Bible teacher, when he was commenting on this verse, he wrote this. If you critics are listening to God's voice, if your critics are listening to God's voice, you'd better listen to them. But if they're marching to a different drumbeat, he said you should use the Nehemiah technique. And what is that? Look, they're not even in the same camp. Let's go right on. That response was possible only because Nehemiah had a real 
faith. And I want to ask you this morning as we close, do you have a real faith? You know, on two Sundays before Easter, it's so easy for us to come in here and on Easter Sunday morning, uh, we'll probably have a bigger crowd than we normally have. And for us just to assume those of us that come into this place every single uh, Sunday or certainly most Sundays, that we have a real faith. I want to ask you this morning, do you really have a real faith? Was there ever a point in your life where you realized that, that you were a sinner and because of your sin, your sin had separated you from God? But because of Easter, because of the cross, there was made a way, his death on the cross, that paid the debt of your sin and my sin and made it possible for us to cross over from spiritual death into life, into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is how we exhibit real faith for the first time. When we place our trust in Christ alone as our personal Savior. Have you ever done that? Have you ever crossed over that line from death into life? Where you stop trusting yourself to be good enough to pay the sin debt that you've racked up. And you said, I can't ever do it on my own. But God made a way. I'm, I'm going to place my trust in Christ alone as my Savior, and you come into relationship, a relationship you were created to have with the God of the universe. Do you have real faith? Real faith is this. Real faith is confidence in God's character, which produces trust and strength, even when the circumstances can cause doubt, fear, and frustration. That's real faith. That's what Nehemiah had, and that's why he could speak so boldly to these people to proclaim to them, to challenge them to do something which was seemingly impossible because he had that kind of faith in a God whose character provides trust and strength even when circumstances cause doubt, fear, and frustration. Boy, I can't wait to get to chapter 3. I think this is such a great moment uh, for us as a young church to be able to look at, at the book of Nehemiah and to be able to look at this journey of the Jewish people and how God allowed them to do something that was seemingly impossible, to do something great for his name, for his fame, for his honor, for his glory. And I think we'll see that in the weeks to come.